If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? Let's not be too dramatic, but it does look as if the world is plundering into <laughs> something that looks like a war, John. A serious war. I. I'm normally we start the, out by this. Normally we start the thing by saying, you know, economics, we like to make it comprehensible, <laughs> la da 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 But now it's like, I hear. Yeah, I know. This is getting a bit serious. This is, this is getting very serious. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to be going over to the Brookings Institute in Washington to talk to Tom Wright, an Irish guy who is central to the thinking on geopolitics there. The Brookings Institute described by many people as the best think tank in the United States and Washington. Oh, really? So that'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. no, it's mad looking stuff, isn't it? But see, there's a whole load of stuff that I kind of, I don't get with this. I mean, this is this is something that's been bubbling for years. Even back in 2004, when I was working for BBC World Service. Were you working for the BBC World <laughs> Service? I was indeed, yeah. <laughs> Every time. You well, know, go on, yeah, because you were reporting on that and you were doing the sound on yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to do the morning radio show, which is five o'clock in the morning. But anyway... I remember in 2004, this is when the Orange Revolution came about, but when they were interviewing all the candidates, of which there were something like 30-something candidates for the president, and half of them were speaking Russian. One guy in particular refused to speak Ukrainian on Ukrainian radio and spoke Russian. And what he said was, when they went, oh, wait, hang on a second, you can't do that. He said, oh, listen, don't worry about it. I will speak Ukrainian during office hours when I'm elected. <laughs> right, okay. So it was like, but that was one of the things I noticed when I was there. I don't think it is, I think it's very amorphous. I think it's very, very, there's loads of Russians there. There's loads of Ukrainians. Lots of people, certainly in Kiev, speak Russian as the default language on the street, like the casual language yeah. of Kiev. Certainly when I was there, but it was did, Russian. But this is the bit I don't really appreciate fully. And it's the way Putin himself says that Ukraine is Russian, but, you know, they have a different language for a start. Some you of know, them have a different language. So, but this is it. This is what I want to really okay. understand. What is the the true relationship yeah. between Russia and Ukraine? Well, the interesting thing is, the, well, let's get to that. I mean, the interesting thing was, I was amazed in Ukraine. There's so many Catholics in Ukraine. And the Pope, there's the Unitarian Ukrainian Catholic Church. Right. Which is, you know, and the Pope is there. So you've got this Orthodox stuff, the yeah. Catholic stuff, all this. Okay. Years ago, when I first went to Ukraine, I stayed in a hotel 
called the Kievskaya Rus. And I was quite interested in the name. I mean, it's a very strange hotel. <laughs> Anybody who's listening who's been to stay in the hotel Kievskaya Rus in Ukraine, it's one of those old Soviet in tourist hotels, right? So right. it's like maybe 18 stories high. Right. Very, very strange, very odd place, right? But that was back in the in the mid-90s where there was nowhere else to stay in Kiev, right? Mm. It was great. I loved it. I love all that old Soviet stuff, right? Very strange. But I was thinking to myself, Kievskaya Rus, what's this all about? And then you go back to the Putin idea, right? Of where does even the expression Russian come from? The Russian right. come from a Scandinavian tribe, a Viking tribe called the Rus. And the Rus settled. Really? Yes. That's their, their Scandinavians, right? Okay. And they, of course, this, this has been debated as to whether they were Slavic or Scandinavian or whatever. But the Rus were a Scandinavian stroke Viking tribe in around the 8th or 9th century. And they set up a duchy of the Kievskaya Rus, which were the people, the Kievs, Kiai were a tribe as well, and the Rus together, which ran this area around okay, Kiev. Right. Call, yeah. Belarusia, parts of Russia, and parts of what's now called Ukraine. And a fascinating thing, John, right? Fascinating little detail. Do you know that the most dominant, or one of the most dominant coins that were found in Woodkey in Dublin, do you remember the excavation of Woodkey? I do, I remember it well. Were called Kufic coins with a Kufic inscription. Now, Kufic is a calligraphy. Yeah. Which was originally the preferred calligraphy of the Quran. And Kufa is a city in southern Iraq. Now, bear with me. Wow. Right? Okay, go on, go on. But the question is, what were these coins, gold and silver coins, with Kufic inscriptions doing in Lord Edward Street? Okay? Yeah. Doing in the center of Dublin. <laughs> and what they were was Dublin was a slave trading port. We yeah. know that. The Vikings traded. And the Vikings had two broad empires. One was in the Atlantic, including Scotland, Ireland, Iceland, all yeah, that thing. Yeah. And the other one was in the Baltic, the Eastern Baltic. And what the Vikings did was the Vikings had these extraordinary trade routes which linked the Baltic Sea to the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea via the two great rivers of Russia, the Volga and right, the Dnieper. Right, yeah, yeah. And the pivotal point on the Dnieper is Kiev. Right, and Kiev was a slave trading outpost. Now, what was being traded were many things: wax, furs, wood, and slaves. Right. So the reason that there were inscriptions of Quranic coins found in Dublin was that Irish slaves were traded in places like Kiev and exchanged for money by the Vikings, and the Vikings brought that money back to Dublin and continued to trade. So we have wow. these very deep wow. links. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? We have these very deep links because, of course, the Dnieper goes out into the Black Sea and the Black Sea would have been the sea via which all the trade with the Islamic world yes, yeah, was, yeah, right? Yeah. So this is like pre-Ottoman. This is Selchuk's. This is like ancient stuff, right? Okay, wow. the ninth century. Yeah, yeah. So that was Kievskaya Rus, which was the origin of the Russian people from this area, right? Yeah. And then, of course, that empire lasted for about 200 years. And then, of course, who came up? The Mughals, Genghis Khan and his yeah, lads. Yeah, yeah. And Genghis Khan and his boys got rid of the Kievskaya Rus. And then what you see is then the Russians re-emerge, recalibrate around Moscow. And under the reign of Catherine the Great, 
they move into the south and they take Ukraine again. Yeah. Which was an independent duchy, right? Which is where Putin is wrong historically. There's always been a Ukrainian duchy down that neck of the woods. Okay. Now, of course, Catherine the Great wasn't even a Russian. She was a German. Yes. Everyone forgets that. Yeah. Because Germany was like a great stud farm for posh people in the old days. <laughs> no, it was. like So if you get this sort of odd enough prince and he's got to find a wife, they used to go to Germany to find wives. Yeah. To be, it was like studs yeah. and mares, right? For but posh they were great people. for the old castle as well. They, they, they loved the castle. Germany, yeah. They loved the castle because <laughs> Germany was full of principalities. Yeah. Tiny little. So Germany, after the breakup, the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, yeah, right? Yeah. Germany became all these principalities of little duchies, yeah, yeah. right? So it was kind of a, it was like kind of Wesley for posh people, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wesley, by the way, is Wesley Rugby Club that we used to always go to the discos. It's in. a teenage disco. So imagine Wesley for aristocrats. That's what Germany is, okay? <laughs> and all these Russian princes start going to Germany looking for mares, yeah. stallions and mares, right? And Catherine the Great was a German. Yeah. And she got into Russia, got into power, and said, all right, famously, famously monogamous to her husband, except for her love of Potemkin, her oh, general, yes. yeah, right? Yeah. And Potemkin was born right down in deepest, deepest Ukraine in a place called Kherson, right? right. So all this stuff is going on. Yeah. But the Russians moved in there 1750s into Ukraine. And the reason they moved into Ukraine is because they wanted to go to war with the Ottoman Turks because they were the big enemy in the area. Right. They had to take over Ukraine to get to the Black Sea yeah. to say to the Turks, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And <laughs> so basically, this is the whole thing. And then you go on up until Alexander III, right? This is the worrying thing about Putin. Putin has always claimed that his favorite Tsar is Alexander III, who ruled Russia from about 1882 or three to 1896, right? Not mm. a particularly huge reign, but a viciously autocratic reign. Oh, right. So he was a counter-revolutionary Tsar. Yeah. He was the second last Tsar to ever exist, yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah. He was the one who decided that he was going to crush all the reforms of his dad. He was going to bring Russia back to autocratic power. He was going to centralize all the power in Moscow. And lo and behold, who does Putin like? Him. Yeah. Not the other Tsars, right? And then, of course, you have the history of Ukraine. With but it was under his reign, though, that the the fomenting of the revolution began. Yeah, because he because basically Russia was very slowly going towards Westernism. Yeah, and he put the brakes on all that. Yeah, and of course, by putting the brakes on all that, he infuriated all the liberals because they were saying, "Look, just just don't be radical, don't be radical. Let's come yeah. along, and we, you know, we'll get this done, right?" But then all the young fellas said, well, hold on a second. Get Brexit done. Yeah, get Brexit done. <laughs> the young fellas said, look, this guy is going backwards. So he, the legacy of Alexander III was to give Nicholas II, the Tsar who ended up getting killed, getting yeah. assassinated, given him all the problems that fermented under yeah. your man's the, reign. A hospital pass. A vicious <laughs> hospital pass. But, but, but this is the thing I'm really curious about because, as you know, we had Jerry McCarthy on here a few weeks ago, saying that your average Russian didn't really... They don't want it. They don't want anything to do with war and that kind of stuff. Life's hard enough. So I wonder, is this move by Putin a move like Alexander III, you know? Is is that going to yeah, cause that whoever a, a comes after, or Whoever comes after Putin is going to have to deal with a huge backlash of all the various states. Yeah. Well, let, yeah. that's, I think we will, we'll ask, we'll ask. Your man, let's ask our man in, in America that question because that's that that is fascinating. Just on the Ukrainian thing, though, 
Then you have, in recent memory, you have Stalin, who moves against Ukrainian farmers. So in 1933, there is a Stalinist-Soviet-inspired famine in Ukraine, where yeah. 5 to 10 million Ukrainians died, died of starvation. Right? They call it the Holomodar, I think is what's called in Ukrainian, okay? Right. Which is like their famine. And who's running the place? Khrushchev. Khrushchev was the head of the Ukrainian Soviet, right? Okay. And then he falls out with Stalin. Yeah. Then he gets back into power. Then he gives Crimea to Ukraine, because Crimea was always Russian. Yeah. So there's all this mix so up. Was Khrushchev Ukrainian? Yeah, he was a Ukrainian farmer. Right. Right? Khrushchev okay. was Ukrainian, right? And then, of course, you get up to now. One thing that I think really pisses off Putin is the following. It was actually Ukraine that voted in 1991 by 90% of people to separate from the Soviet Union. And it was Ukraine that really put the knife into Gorbachev. Right. And I think that is what pisses off Putin. Because yeah. Putin's on record as saying... The collapse of the Soviet Union was the most catastrophic event of the 20th century. And when he looks back at Christmas Day 1991, when Gorbachev was forced to sign the end of the Soviet Union, it was the Ukrainians who were precipitating that by their referendum, which said, we want to leave. There was a thing called the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, yeah, yeah. and the Ukrainians said, so maybe part of Putin's thinking is almost like payback. God, he's such nasty, vicious little... You could look at him at that one way. But I mean, no, but what he is, is he's a, he's like a lot of these autocrats. He's a legacy president. Mm. You know, his, his idea is, what is my legacy going to be? You know, he looks at Peter the Great. He looks at Catherine the Great. He looks at all these czars. He looks at all these people and he says, that's me. I'm one of them. Yeah. You know? Massive ego. Massive ego. Small lad, massive ego into judo, yeah. takes his kid off, all that sort of carry on. But we have got to this stage now where Russia has invaded Ukraine. The invasion has happened. Yeah. So everyone was thinking, will it happen? Will it not happen? It has happened. And now the question is, where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, I suppose the only way to answer this then is to ask our guy in the Brookings Institute... We will. We will ask Tom Wright, Irish guy, very much central to thinking about foreign affairs in the Brookings Institute. The Brookings Institute, John, is one of those American think tanks. There's actually a street called Think Tank Row in Washington. And the Brookings Institute would be is is like the real old premier. Yeah. It's like the sort of the Harvard of think tanks. It's been around for a long, long time, since about 1916. Yeah. It's very, very much centrist. It's bipartisan. It's centrist. It seemed to be very, very close to U.S. administration thinking. And there's obviously a huge amount of people go from the administration to these think tanks and via. So what we're going to listen to now is somebody who's speaking who's very, very close to the American administration in terms of their thinking. And Tom Wright just happens to be Irish, which is always good. Yeah. And is just back from the Munich Security Conference last weekend, where all the bigwigs go to talk about security, NATO, geopolitics, all this sort of stuff. So let's go to Washington and talk to Tom Wright. Now we are going to the Brookings Institute in Washington. And an Irishman who is central to the thinking of the Brookings Institute is Tom Wright. He's on the line. Tom, how are you? 
Good, David. It's great to be with you. Thank you. No, not at all. Listen, thanks for thanks for taking the call. Now, Tom, the Brookings Institute has been described as many, many things, but mainly almost the brains of, or close to the brains of, the American administration. This is the liberal American administration. Tell me what you think is going on now at the administration, now that Putin has raised the ante and escalated the crisis. Yeah, well, David, you know, it's a crucial week. It's probably the most important week, I think, in European security since the end of the Cold War. Um, we're, what we're seeing Putin do uh, with the initial, you know, the vote yesterday to, to recognize uh, Luhansk and Donetsk as independent sort of entities is a major escalation. It's almost certainly just the beginning, right? It's just the beginning of a broader move. The administration has been sort of warning of this since early November. And it's quite interesting if you just zoom back a moment, you know, when they took office, Russia wasn't sort of top of the priority list. You know, you could imagine they'd come in and they'd say, you know, Russia interfered in 2016. You know, they've done all these things. We're really going to go after Russia. They didn't do that. They were focused on, you know, China, on international economics and a bunch of other foreign policy for the middle class. You know, they dealt with Russia. They were new, new start. They had a, a meeting with Putin in the summer. But for the most part, you know, it wasn't sort of central to their foreign policy. They then sort of saw a series of things happen in, in, in the autumn over sort of October, November, that gave them sort of cause for alarm. And they went to the Allies and tried to convince them that an invasion was, was quite likely um, in the spring. And they managed to convince the NATO allies and the EU um, of that for sort of a common response. But all along, I think they hoped to be able to avert sort of the invasion by sort of threatening a series of, of actions if they did invade and then saying, on the other hand, if you don't invade, you know, we'll have a robust a, a diplomatic track where we will talk about security, architecture, arms control, all of these other things, any legitimate concerns that Russia had. So their hope was that ultimately Putin may just get cold feet and would, you know, would embrace sort of the diplomacy because, you know, that the invasion would result in a deterioration of his own security environment as he perceived it. What we found out this weekend was that that, you know, that hasn't happened and that the base case which is what they were worried about all along, is basically coming to pass before our eyes. And the question really now, there's a few. One is, you know, how to respond and how to unpack all of those sanctions. But I think more urgently and important is um, just how bad is this going to get? I mean, you know, I was at the, the Munich Security Conference over the weekend and a lot of the government analysts there or from the intelligence community and others think this could be, you know, this could be a major sort of conflict with a full-scale invasion, over 50,000 casualties potentially in a fairly quick sort of period of time. So we haven't seen anything like this in a very long, you know, time for 30 years it's all been about Western interventions and those have been controversial. People can argue about those, but this is the first time really we have a major sort of invasion of another country by a country like Russia since, since 1979 you know, in Afghanistan. So can I just stop you there? Because what you're saying is this, this is the beginning of something much, much bigger. It could be. Can I go back to Munich? Because I, I read about the Munich Security Council that's on every year all the Western intelligence people, journalists, thinkers, academics come to it. What was the mood? Because I was watching, you know, Macron come home the other night as if almost like Chamberlain, as if I did like 
I have a deal here with Putin and we're going to set up something. What was the mood last weekend? And why do you think Putin's doing this now? Because again, you're talking to the administration all the time. They're talking to you, etc. Just talk me through that. Yeah, well, just on Putin firstly, you know, I, I think when you if you look at his speech yesterday, I mean, he really believes that Ukraine is a part of Russia, you know, that Ukraine isn't really an independent country. And I, I think part of it is age, actually. You know, he's 69 years old. He's headed into his 70s. He's been there for 21 years. I think that he wants to basically reunify Russia, right, in, in the way, you know, Bismarck wanted to unify Germany back in the in, in the 19th century. And, you know, he doesn't trust his successors to do that. He doesn't believe that anyone who comes after him will be as capable or as adept. And he also believes that if he waits 10 years, obviously he'll be much older. So it's a more of a question of why not now, as opposed to why now. And then if you sort of add up a variety of other factors that Ukraine is gravitating toward the West, not so much through NATO, but just, you know, because they've been attacked by Russia, because there's tensions of Russia, and because, you know, the Russian model isn't very attractive, you know, they're looking to engage more with the EU, to trade, to have cultural exchanges, all of these other things, which means they're shifting out of the Russian orbit. And so Putin, I think, sees sort of an op- both an opportunity and almost a last chance to, you know, to act, to bring them in, in the only way he knows how, which is through the use of force. So, so Tom, you're saying that this is more or less in Putin's head, a legacy issue, an expansion issue, an idea that he is the man to do this. He, it's his destiny to reunify. Because, again, if you think about what Putin once said about the collapse of the Soviet Union, the most catastrophic political event of the 20th century. And there was a lot of political events that were pretty catastrophic in the 20th century. But for him, the idea of reunifying the ex-Soviet Union is an important part. What does America and the West do now? I This morning, uh, the Germans said that they were going to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline or stop building it. Okay, and the larger building. What does the West do now? I think there's a, a couple of things that are incredibly important. One is to implement the sanctions and a lot of these sort of other containment measures to impose costs on, on Putin to either to have some hope of deterring him from going further, but also to, to set in place sort of this long sort of patient strategy of, of cost imposition in the hope that there can be some diplomacy later on to have a Russian withdrawal as, as unlikely as that seems. But I think an even more urgent piece of it is actually to focus on, you know, the conflict that's about to happen. So we are looking at potentially millions of refugees flowing from Ukraine, you know, into Poland and the EU, there is a significant chance of escalation, you know, in this conflict. I mean, just think about a couple of things. One, what if Westerners are killed in Russian airstrikes, which will not be, you know, incredibly, you know, targeted and and, and perfect. I mean, there are always mistakes and atrocities in any air campaign. This one will, will likely be at least as bad, if not considerably worse than others. So that's one scenario. Another is that, you know, if you have the Ukrainian army in retreat from the Russians and you have Russia sort of chasing it, 
up to the Polish border as the Ukrainians might be dipping in and out behind that border. That's another way it could potentially pull in a NATO country. So there's lots of room, I think, for escalation and contagion. And then, you know, your area of expertise, obviously, as well in the, on the markets, a lot of these sanctions you know, affect everyone, not just Russia. And there's lots of potentially unintended consequences. And we haven't seen sort of a market reaction yet. I think that's been somewhat delayed. So there's an economic component to it. So I think just in the next few weeks, the main sort of focus of the administration and of Europe uh, will be on trying to, you know, contain in a humanitarian, diplomatic and military way what's actually unfolding and to deal with those consequences as well as they're sort of rolling out, you know, what has been promised uh, toward Putin and, you know, not just on on the major sanctions, but on, you know, Boris Johnson spoke over the weekend about cleaning up the city of London. There's a lot of sanctions targeted against oligarchs and others. So, yeah, I think it's it's going to be, I think, a very tumultuous few weeks ahead. And can you tell me about scenario planning at the American administration? So I'm always intrigued by this, you know, that that you have a base case, and then you have an extreme case, and then you have a beneficial case, or a, or a least malignant case. We are now looking at the most malign case, which is that Putin took Crimea, he takes Western Ukraine, he builds, and there's kind of a slightly Milosevic-esque sort of idea that is based on kind of cultural and ethnic and historic and and a clear misreading, many people would say, of history, or history as it suits his own narrative. Yeah. The West then, I mean, is it Putin's idea to just create a failed state in Ukraine as the buffer state? And he might be happy with that. So that Ukraine is, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's like a, a failed state on the, on the border of Russia. Or do you think people are now thinking, hold on a second, he wants something more? I think he wants effective control, and effective control being the right to choose the government, the ability to choose Ukraine's government. Like he, he wants a Ukrainian government that's sort of beholden to him. And I think that's the tangible gain that he would get out of this. And it's a big prize for him. I mean, if we're honest, like he, you know, for Russian nationalism, that's a big thing. That's why he's willing to pay the price. Right? It's not just about dividing us or standing or anything else. He's willing to take these risks because, you know, he potentially, from his point of view, has a major gain to make. And then he believes he can ride out those costs. Uh, if he wins, you know, in Ukraine, then some of the rest of the world will adjust. And, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really mind, I think, if he's in a long term sort of cold war with the U.S. or, or with others. So I think that's his calculation. But I think, you know, if if that succeeds for him, we're in a wholly different world. Explain that. Explain that. Well, the message really to the world is that, you know, this is something that that major powers, you know, that, that China or others could do, you know, on Taiwan or elsewhere. And that if they're not formally part of an alliance, then there will be a response. But if the costs aren't overwhelming, then that's a price that can be paid and you can just adjust and move on. And so I, I think it is sort of the, you know, in the same way that Yugoslavia was the beginning of a series of Western interventions in the early 90s and Kosovo, you know, this could be the beginning of a series of conflicts of expansion or imperialism or whatever we, we call it for countries that feel they've been cut out to have their own sphere of influence. And that's something he talks about all the time. It's why can't Russia have 
sort of a sphere of influence. He doesn't believe Ukraine is sovereign. You know, he really believes there's only a handful of countries in the world that are truly sovereign and the rest are, are sort of made up, you know, because they're not taking care of their own security and they're, you know, they're reliant on the U.S. Anyone who relies on the U.S. from his point of view is not really a sovereign country. Let's just look, because what you've painted there, and it's, sometimes it's always interesting because in the fog of war, everyone focuses on the specific hour-to-hour, day-to-day, but what you've done is you're drawing back and saying, oh, we could be in a completely different world because we started this conversation, you said this is the biggest, biggest week in European and Western security affairs for decades. And Lenin once said that there are many decades when nothing happens and there are many days when decades happen. So are we in that, that we could be actually in a totally new world? Yeah, I mean, if if he if what we're seeing is the beginning of a full scale invasion where you have Russian troops going up to and surrounding, you know, Kiev, you have thousands of of casualties, you have refugee flows, international sanctions that are affecting markets, with long term sort of you know principles and and geopolitical consequences at stake. I think that is a fundamental turning point, which I think is why Biden and Schultz and Macron and others invested so much time in trying to avert it from happening, you know, because they understood what a pivotal, you know, moment this was. Unfortunately, you know, it seems like it is actually, you know, coming to pass. And and again, you know, if you just listen to what Putin said yesterday, I think you, you get a sense of, you know, of how driven he is on this. So this is not just a sort of a misunderstanding or something that can be papered over as diplomacy often would. You know, you just come up with everyone wants to step back. This is more an intention from him that he he wants to upset the apple cart, right? That's his, because he wants something different. And, And again, one can agree or disagree, you know, about the specifics of NATO expansion or other stuff. But I think fundamentally, he wants to totally revise the European security order, and he's willing to you as president to do that. Tom, can I just jump in and ask you a quick question? Just apart from the geopolitics, a lot of the stuff that I've been reading, and we had a Jerry McCarthy on the podcast here recently, talking about the general feeling of your average Russian. And the average Russian either had no interest or knew very little about it, but essentially they're not particularly behind Putin. Is this something that could, you know, with all the sanctions and stuff, when they start to bite, is this something that could blow up in Putin's face at home domestically? Absolutely. I think it absolutely could, and it's a huge vulnerability. And I think it's one of the reasons why many people hope that ultimately he wouldn't do it, you know, because if, if... the US and Europe outlined all of these sanctions, he might think, look, I'm not on a solid enough footing. So John, I totally agree, but for whatever reason, he has decided you know, that he can ride that out. Now his election, quote unquote, is until 2024. So you know, he has a little bit of time. That's always a tricky period for, for him. But I, I think that's something to watch very, very closely. People don't, from everything we know, Russian the Russian people don't feel about Ukraine in the same way that he does, yeah. right? That it's they they may believe that you know there should be closer ties, but they don't sort of see it as this 
overarching, you know, objective that it has to be brought back into the Russian orbit um, in, in the way that was clear from what he said yesterday and for many months now. So, yeah, I think that is uh, something he's going to have to really worry about. Because, you know, yeah, John's right. Like History is full of occasions where leaders go into wars on the assumption that things are going to go okay and on the assumption that he's going to get popular support and something that falls away very, very quickly, particularly something that feels as illegitimate in terms of national security and the average Russian's person's sense of the world as this. Yeah, uh, completely. Although, David, I would say that, I mean, it was interesting in Munich, one thing I noticed was there was a little bit of a divide between those who thought this isn't going to change all that much, right? Like they'll invade, there'll be sanctions, there'll be a stalemate, and then we'll sort of move on. And those who thought, you know, it could be pretty transformative. And as you know, you know, before any conflict, our temptation analytically is to think incrementally, you know, that things won't change. There'll be a little bit, you know, but not that entire orders or systems will will fall. And there's no real way to predict that, right? But I just think that something on this scale could easily have outside effects, not, not just for Russia, but also for for the rest of Europe. And, and that that's, I think, what makes many people sort of nervous is what, you know, in terms of the future of European security and even political order and economic order, you know, if, if some of these, if Russia cuts off the gas, you know, what impact does that have, you know, on the rest of Europe in terms of a prolonged recession? Are we looking at a 1973 scenario or something else? And then what are the political repercussions of that? So there's, there's just a lot of different things in play, I think, this week that mean, you know, that the decisions taken over the next couple of weeks, I think, will be with us for, for quite some time. And just 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 on that, are we talking, you know, for since 1945, there's been a pretty tacit understanding that the European Union, well, since 1957, let's say, you know, yes, we had armies, but ultimately it was the American stroke NATO sphere of influence. America would look after us. America would pay the bill, all that sort of stuff that a lot of people on the right in America have come down quite heavily about. Uh, is there a sense now that the European Union, if it is to realistically defend itself, realistically, uh, will need to consider things like European armies? I mean, there's just huge consequences, even for Ireland's own neutrality and how we all deal with that. But do you think that we could be going in that direction, that the sort of phony security of the Cold War and the first 30 years of the post-Cold War is now over? Yeah, I mean, that's Macron believes that. Like, he, he believes that the US in the long term, even though Biden is an Atlanticist and is totally there in this crisis, that, you know, if Trump had been in power, maybe the US wouldn't be there. And so Macron's been saying the EU needs to step up and do more. But I would say for Eastern and Central Europe, this crisis sort of underscores the indispensability of, of NATO and of the US, right? And so from their point of view, this shows the US has to be engaged. The big question is whether or not politically the US, you know, has the intention to sort of stay. Now, now Biden does, but, you know, will the next president you know, have that intention. And I think it, it could go either way. You know, we don't really know, but I just don't really see if you have a much more aggressive Putin, I don't really see a way to, you know, have sort of stability without sort of a continuation of, you know, the NATO role, right? So I, I think if I was 
you know, looking at it from the EU point of view, I would focus less on an army that could replace NATO. I don't think that's remotely possible or even, you know, desirable. And more, you know, what can the EU do on the political, diplomatic and economic side to act with one voice? And what we're seeing this week is actually very encouraging in that, you know, so there is unity on the sanctions piece. There is unity on the diplomatic piece. Um, so I think that's, you know, on the technological piece, on cybersecurity, refugees, all of these other elements, I think, are probably more relevant than sort of a, a theological question about... Yeah, about the armies about and who, who defends armies. So, yeah, so I think that's, I just would, you know, because I know it's a sensitive issue, especially in Ireland, but I think just it's worth sort of focusing on those practical problems that the EU has real competence in, where a lot still needs to be done, like on the, you know, humanitarian, diplomatic, economic and, and political side on a crisis like this. And NATO, I think, will 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 take care of that other piece, you know, because that's just something I that's think what that's, they do. That's what they do. Yeah. John, did you want to come back in before we go? Yeah, just one quick question about Macron and his kind of dealings with Putin over the last few weeks. I mean, he, he famously went over to the Kremlin and sat down for whatever it was. The In the fight. big table. The big table, yeah. <laughs> but it was only days after that that the French troops up and left Mali, leaving Mali to the thousand-strong Russian militia. And Russia's influence in Africa in general seems to be growing. Is this part of a, a bigger plan for Putin? Or are they related at all? I mean, he's wanted to be globally active for some time, you know, and he likes to be part of every problem because he thinks that gives him some purchase. <laughs> you know, right. he's part of the problem. He's at the table and he has to be dealt with and he doesn't want to be ignored or marginalized. And so he he is a bit like Monopoly. You know, he wants to have property on every on every square right mm. so he that's what he will deal himself in and if he's not dealt in he'll figure out a way to do it like in syria so i i think it's not you know it's not the cold war and that i don't think we you know it's not about him sort of having a global plan for domination or expansion but i think he does want to be you know relevant from his from his perspective on macron I would just say, look, I think Macron, I think, has performed quite well in this crisis. You know, if we had this conversation two or three months ago. I would have said, well, look, with the election coming up, he might do a Sarkozy. He'll go a bit rogue. He'll he'll do his own thing. He'll try to cut side deals. He hasn't done any of that. He's actually, you know, they've been pretty, pretty aligned with Biden. I think every time Macron has met with Putin, it's been in deep consultation with the with the U.S. and the other allies. And then in what he has said, you know, apart from one statement that I think was misinterpreted and totally taken out of context when he allegedly said something about Finland on his way over or back from Moscow, you know, it's been very much sort of synced up with the official position. And I think it's good to have multiple avenues into Putin because, look, this guy doesn't really, as you saw at the big table, like he doesn't mm. really see many people anymore. He certainly doesn't see many people who he disagrees with. And so getting some connection into him to deliver messages, I think, is, you know, important. And we saw with Schultz this morning and Nord Stream 2 did that decision. I just think that France and Germany, for all of the criticism, have actually come through on this. And what we've, you know, what we've really seen, some differences of style and emphasis, but basically pretty remarkable unity, not just with NATO, but also with 
EU and the US. You know, and uh, Irish government has been part of that too. We saw with, with COVID's comments today. And so I, I just think there's a very, there's a very unified sort of position, you know, on, on, on this crisis. Tom, we will leave it there. It's fascinating stuff. And now yeah. that you now that you've been on the podcast, you we won't be able to get rid of us. Great. Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> Great stuff, Tom. Listen, take care. Thanks for taking the call. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Come here. Talk to me about the economics of this. Okay, I'll tell you what the econ- There hasn't been a major global recession in the last 40 years that has not been preceded by rising interest rates and rising oil prices. Yeah. We have rising interest rates already, and we're definitely going to get rising oil prices because Russia is a major, major exporter of gas and oil. And if you sanction Russia, which it looks like is going to happen, then the supply of oil around the world contracts dramatically. Yeah. It'll be up then to Saudi Arabia, which is the swing producer in OPEC, to try and expand the supply of oil. Will they, do you think? I think they probably will, but not to the extent that they can actually offset the scarcity that will come from Russia, number one. Right. Number two, there will be a flight to the US dollar. There's always a flight to quality. So every sort of speculative asset that was priced for blue skies is now going to be priced for catastrophe. So loads and loads of assets. Including the likes of Bitcoin and... I'd say so, yeah, because... Crypto all, properties. Well, all that sort of crypto... Probably, yeah, crypto properties. Because all that stuff is priced for blue skies. It's like, don't worry, everything's going to work out fine. Right. You'll get gold will rise in value. The dollar will rise in value. The US long bond will rise in terms of... Yields will fall, prices will rise... And ultimately, what you're going to get is a crisis in commodity markets, in the prices of oil right. and the price of gas. All of this does not bode well for the global economy. And I suppose what Tom was saying is that if this is the beginning of something bigger, and that bigger is Russian troops going into Ukraine. Yeah then what we're going to have is a refu- huge amount of refugees. 
because yeah. people the only people yeah. that suffer in wars are normal people yeah 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 and they and they move yeah they run well of course we're going to have financial markets reversing themselves we're going to have higher oil prices and the question then is how do you get out of that yeah you know do we do a deal with putin in order to save ourselves because that's the question or do is that that's probably what he's banking on though isn't that's it that's exactly what he's banking on and what he's banking on is that we want to save ourselves more. That's the West, I mean. Yeah. Then we want to teach him a lesson, number one, or save people in Western Ukraine. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz. Follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.